Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us today and welcome to the LexisNexis webinar on navigating insurance law during COVID-19. As you are likely aware, businesses are slowly starting to come back from government-imposed closures. And even as they return, business is limited, either by virtue of social distancing requirements, compromised workforces, or simply lowered interest in consumer and commercial activity. As with most unprecedented and unexpected events, this presents a unique question for insurers and their clients. As business owners return to operation, they need to deal with the significant gap in revenue that has been left behind, many of them turning to their insurance policies for help. Searching for creative ways to stretch their coverage that may not strictly be worded in quote unquote pandemic terms uh, in order to cover their losses. Here with me today are three insurance law experts to discuss the unique issues and questions that have been put on display by the pandemic. Joining me today are Mr. Michael Pierce, Mr. Frank Benedetto, and Mr. Michael Benetti. First on the panel, Mr. Michael Pierce is a lawyer at Strickberger Brown Armstrong LLP. He is experienced in cybersecurity, privacy, and product liability law and insurance litigation. Mr. Pierce has written articles on the likely surges of certain claims in the wake of the pandemic, both respect, with respect to insurers and other parties, such as personal injury claims, bankruptcy, professional liability claims against brokers, and wrongful dismissal claims. We're looking forward to uh, discussing those uh, positions today. Mr. Frank Benedetto is a managing partner at Flaherty McCarthy LLP. He is counsel in complex tort insurance and accident benefits claims, priority and loss transfer disputes, and cross-border matters. Mr. Benedetto's clients include major insurance companies, corporations, and the injured facing chal uh, challenging disputes. He appears before all levels of court in Ontario in private arbitrations and the License Appeal Tribunal. In, a, in upholding important traditions of the legal profession, he contributes to the education uh, of young lawyers and volunteers. Mr. Benedetto has taught insurance law at the University of the Queen's Faculty of Law, has been a participant of the Osgoode Hall Law School's insurance law practicum, and presents for a variety of legal organizations. Finally, Mr. Michael Benetti is the managing partner of uh, is a managing partner of Affleck Green McMurtry LLP, a Toronto commercial litigation firm. Mr. Benetti's experience in insurance defense includes errors and emissions claims against insureds in a variety of professions, including the securities industry, claims against directors and officers, legal expense insurance claims, performance and labor and material payment bond claims, and acting as class action defense counsel. Mr. Benetti has received the Martindale Hubble AV preeminent rating from his peers in the legal profession. I look forward to, uh, to hearing what each of the panelists' perspectives are today on the, on the questions of the insurance industry uh, post-COVID-19 and during COVID-19. So now, without further ado, let's jump into our first question. And I'll be putting this question to the entire panel if um, anyone has something to to. Uh, feels like answering at the front, please uh, go ahead. And if anyone wants to add, please uh, jump in. So the first question is, roughly speaking, how many insurers do you think have, do you think have clients with coverage specifically for pandemics? I'll start on that one. Um, the part of the answer to that question is it depends on what you mean by 
coverage specifically for pandemics. If you're talking about uh, coverage for specifically for, for pandemics in a business interruption context, then the answer is probably not very many, less than five uh, in Canada. Uh, because before the before the pandemic, a couple of insurers have come out and said that they had pandemic coverage for sale, but no one was buying it. Um, if you're talking about um, event cancellation, contingency, uh, or other kinds of claims, even cyber claims that result from COVID uh, or, the, or the pandemic, then the answer balloons significantly because you will have a vast number of insurers, in, certainly in the cyber piece and in the contingency area, uh, who insure event cancellation, uh, who will have who will have offered coverage specific to the pandemic. So the question really is, is you know, what kind of claims are you talking about and, and which insurers are, are you, are you uh, talking about in terms of coverage specifically for pandemic? There were, as I said, there were two insurers who were offering specific pandemic business interruption cover before this, this pandemic happened, uh, but both of them have come out and said <laughs> that uh, very few people were buying it. We all probably heard about uh, the All England Tennis Club, also known as Wimbledon. Uh, they were one of the major organizations that had actually purchased the coverage. Uh, and my understanding is they got a payout or are in, in line for a payout of something in the order of $200 million as a result of the cancellation of the Wimbledon Tennis Tournament uh, this, this spring. So, uh, But they were one of the few that actually bought uh, pandemic-specific business interruption cover. Okay, thank you. Yeah, well, I would agree with that. It depends on uh, what the definition of pandemic is, and uh, probably that word is not included in, in uh, many uh, but two policies. Um, there are measures that have been taken by insurers, uh, for example, to maintain regular claims process and uh, ensuring that they're working with customers who experience financial hardship. And uh, on the auto side, for example, uh, personal vehicles that are uh, used for deliveries for, are typically not covered under a standard Ontario automobile policy. Uh, however, during the COVID pandemic, uh, that may be considered on a case-by-case -case basis, for example, if someone is uh, delivering food or medical supplies to those in need, um, or if uh, the use of the vehicle has changed from when uh, someone applied for insurance, uh, for example, uh, commuting uh, to work as opposed to using uh, traffic and uh, using um, um, public transportation rather. And uh, likewise, with respect to uh, vacancy exclusions in policies uh, for home and business uh, insurers are asking to be contacted, uh, for example, so that measures could be put in place uh, with primary residences or, and even perhaps secondary properties. Okay, thank you. And Mr. Benetti, do you have anything to add on this question or should I move on to the next one? Yeah, I think there was some specialty coverage with some like groups like dentists or whatnot, but uh, you know, there's not many, if at all. Okay, thank you. Uh, the second question is, do you anticipate the coverage for stoppage due to government orders will cover the business interruption claims for those businesses forced to close due to the pandemic? And will coverage extend to those companies that voluntarily close their businesses before they were compelled to do so by law? So um, in terms of the government order and, and uh, policies that have 
that have a specific coverage grant for government-ordered shutdowns, uh, certainly I think we would all expect that at, at the very least, uh, any insured who has a policy that has that specific coverage uh, certainly should be putting a claim into their insurer and and uh, would have a good argument at the very least that coverage should should be awarded. Um, the second part of the question uh, is a little more complicated, um, but in my opinion, the short answer to that is is no. Uh, you don't get coverage for something you do voluntarily. Uh, there is a doctrine called imminent peril, um, which I think some plaintiffs' counsel may try to to use to say, look, you know, we're trying to avoid a risk here in, in shutting down voluntarily, and therefore any expenses we incur in doing that should be covered by the policy. But the imminent peril doctrine requires uh, two things. First, that the peril that's attempting to be avoided is a peril insured. So what is it that you're attempting to avoid? And second, the, the damage that you're attempting to avoid has to be inevitable. So if, if for example, a business says, well, we shut down so that no one would get COVID at our premises. Well, that's not inevitable. It might be likely, it might be possible, but courts have said likely or possible is not enough. The damage itself has to be inevitable in order for the doctrine to, to be applicable. Um, and courts have been quite reluctant to, to deem things inevitable unless there's ample scientific evidence to that effect. So uh, I think the answer to the question to, to the second part of the question is, is likely no. And would that, that just as a follow up, would that apply in the instance where a business um, closes voluntarily, closed voluntarily at the outset, and then was prevented from reopening by virtue of the order? Um, I presume that coverage would extend for that period after the order was uh, handed down. Assuming or, that the the insured in question has a, a government order uh, coverage provision in their policy, then certainly yes, I think once that government order comes down, they have at least standing to make a claim and, and ha probably have a reasonable expectation that that claim would be honored. But for the period in which the shutdown is voluntary, I think the answer is no, <clears throat> or at least a qualified no. Okay. Yeah. I mean, coverage for business closures due to orders of a civil authority vary, of course, according to particular policy wording. So I suppose a typical property policy that includes this type of clause has some possibility of applying particularly in light of government directives that non-essential businesses close. Interestingly, uh, the question addresses if a business voluntarily closes earlier, that certainly would complicate matters. And although there might be a public policy argument, uh, we agree with uh, Mr. Pierce's um, summary of the imminent peril doctrine and its applicability in that context. No Thank you. So is there, uh, the third question here is, is there a distinction in insurance policies between losses resulting from comp a compromised workforce as a result of stop work orders and loss of income due to low consumption of goods and services? This is more of a introductory question, but um, just so that we're all on the same page. I'll, I'll take this. I mean, it's the, the short answer to this is yes. I mean, it, the in insurance policies very rarely would uh, insure an organization or, or a, an ongoing concern or a company against lack of demand for their product. I mean, it, it, that's just not something that insurers are are in the business of insuring. They they will insure what they call fortuitous events. So that's and that's defined as an unlooked for, unexpected, or 
event that's not intended by the insured. So, but lack of demand is not something that uh, insurers would see as fortuitous. So it's, it's not an insurable event. Yeah, exactly. Uh, interrupted business losses are generally covered because of if the business uh, cannot use its premise, for example, um, this is very distinct from a business that suffers losses due to low consumption, which is not a direct result of uh, physical uh, business premise itself. Yeah. And um, for my curiosity here, that, that applies even in instances where the use of their services are entirely precluded by law, for example, in, in the tra- travel instance or um, I'm not sure in, in, the, in the context of a restaurant, for example, those are also excluded. Is that what you're saying? Well, the general business interruption policy requires that the, the interruption to the business be a result of either direct property damage or direct loss of property. So what they're looking at is if you have a fire or a flood and that interrupts your business, we will pay for the loss of profit or the loss of income in that intervening period before you can reopen. But in this scenario, the issue you have here is there hasn't been, uh, for for most businesses, a direct uh, loss of property or direct property damage. What you're talking about is a government order that says you can't operate. And that's a different kind of thing, which is why there is a fair bit of controversy about the interpretation of the business interruption policy in that context and why you've seen some calls, especially in the United States, for governments to legislate uh, coverage on a retroactive basis. Um, Because I think, and this anticipates one of the later questions, but uh, the, the difference in approach here and in the U.S., I think, militates a, a different or, or mitigates against that kind of uh, response here. But certainly, um, you know, the, the typical business interruption policy depends on or is contingent upon either a loss of property by theft or of some other means or property damage. And that is, has not happened in this context, at least to the vast majority of insureds. Thank you. Um, if there are no further comments on this question, I'll move on to the next one. So uh, in your experience in looking at the trends, have you witnessed insurers uh, planning on changing the types of coverage that will be available in the light of the pandemic or tweaking any of their insurance policies to uh, respond and better serve clients that might be living with some regret right now? Frank, you want to take that? Yeah, it seems that um, insurers and insureds will be alive and are alive more so now than ever to the meaning of physical damage within the policy, um, physical damage to property in the context of an all-risk policy. Um, And we certainly anticipate that insurers will move to clarify and clearly define pandemic um, likely as an exclusion going forward. Okay. I've certainly seen uh, some insurers, uh, especially at Lloyd's, putting in uh, a pandemic exclusion on a variety of different policies. So certainly they are reacting. Um, and as, as Frank mentioned earlier, uh, some of the auto insurers are relaxing certain coverages or, or certain exclusions. So for example, using your vehicle for a commercial purpose, if you're delivering food or medical supplies on a humanitarian basis, a lot of the auto insurers are saying, look, we're not going to exclude that behavior. But um, a lot of insurers are, are looking to restrict coverage for pandemic rather than expand it. 
And, and I think you're going to see a lot of pandemic-related language be mo more broadly speaking, be inserted into contracts generally, either the, the business contracts that insurers enter into or just day-to-day -day businesses. Um, you know, I think of employment law contracts and other contracts. So whether it's excluded or clarified, I think there's going to be a general trend to have that expanded out. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Um, this is the next question here. Do you expect uh, and have you seen a surge in COVID-related claims? I mean, it's sort of leading there, but uh, can you describe anything unique about them? In particular, Mr. Pierce, in an article on April 27, 2020, you wrote that you thought that there will be an increase in claims by insured against their brokers at this time. What is the reason you believe brokers should anticipate this flood of claims? You also wrote uh, that the use of cyber attacks and ransomware attempts will be on the rise. Uh, can you elaborate further, please? Sure. Um, and it just in terms of the broker claims, because anytime you have a series of claims or even a single claim being denied by an insurer, um, often what is happening, and, and I, I defended brokers for a number of years, and so I've experienced this, um, is that if an insurance claim gets denied, one of the things that plaintiff's counsel will do is they sue the insurer for the denial but then the alternative, they sue the broker and say, if the insurer uh, can uphold this denial of coverage, then you, my insurance broker, uh, should have known that it wasn't covered under the policy you provided me with and should have offered me a, a policy that did actually cover the event in question. So in a context where you've had a couple of insurers come out and say, uh, and the, the two insurers are Mars is one and Berkshire Hathaway is the other, that, that said we did have pandemic coverage. Uh, that we were offering to the market before this happened and no one would buy it. Uh, but in that context, if you've got insurers who are saying this product is available in the market, um, plaintiff's counsel will seize on that and say, you, Mr. Broker or Ms. Broker, ought to have offered that coverage to my client, your, your client, your former client often. Um, and had you done so, they would have bought it uh, or at least would have been alive to the risk. And so... Mm -hmm. The brokers can have a couple of defenses to that. The first often is, I did offer it and they refused to buy it. Uh, sometimes that's documented and sometimes it isn't. So you have proof issues. The second answer to the question is, even if I had offered it to them, they wouldn't have bought it because it was too expensive. So, uh, you know, it, it gets in, you get into that debate. But certainly anytime there is a denial of coverage, um, a lot of plaintiff's counsel will not just sue the insurer, they sue the broker as well as an alternative uh, source. <clears throat> in terms of cyber events and ransomware, um, all of the organizations that monitor this kind of activity have said that uh, ransomware and other kinds of attacks, phishing, uh, whaling, which is simply large-scale phishing, um, and other kinds of attacks have gone up as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And often what's happening is not just the frequency of, of attacks has gone up, but the attackers are targeting their attacks or their phishing differently. So they're instead of just sending you a, a phishing email that says, can you change the terms of your payment? What they're saying now is they're, they're sending phishing emails that say that are either offering information about the pandemic or are offering assistance with government programs um, in order to get people to click on the links. And the reason I said that I thought there will be an increase in claims is that I think what's happening now is you have an increase in attacks, but what the attackers are doing often when they make a successful attack is instead of executing that right away, they're lurking in systems. 
So they lurk in a business of systems and, and they watch and wait and see how much information they can find out, whether it's banking information, anticipated EFT information or anything like that. They look for, for EFTs, electronic fund transfers that they can intercept. They look for banking information so they know how much they can ask for in a ransom demand. And so what happens is that makes the claims more severe. So what I think what you'll probably find in the next three to six to nine months is that the number and frequency and severity of cyber claims will slowly climb because you'll have attackers who, who launch these successful attacks during the pandemic who will sit and wait for economic activity to pick back up and for people to have a little more money in their bank account. And then they will launch the ransomware attack mm. and shut down the servers and say, now we want all of the money in your bank account, as an mm-hmm. example. <clears throat> Sit and wait kind of approach. Okay. Yeah. And Mr. Benetti and Mr. Benedetto, are there any other surges that you expect in um, COVID-related claims across the board? Well, certainly there would be uh, lawsuits, and there have been lawsuits that have been launched, for example, against nursing homes, insurance companies, airlines we've already seen class proceedings which is in another question that we'll get to uh, there's probably around 20 class proceedings right now across canada uh, with many more investigations underway um, and perhaps unique uh, uh, in addition to what mr pierce raised uh, is uh, just the application of the force majeure and frustration of contract um, um, issues that are are frequently referred to by insurers um, as a defense, for example. So we can uh, discuss that at the appropriate uh, question, unless you'd like to now. But um, I think that there will be also the government pressure on the government to immunize various companies from liability. So we're always working in the context of insurance and commercial realities, of course, in order to have the best result for um, a commercial, you know, an ongoing concern in the true economic sense, and what's best for the citizens of a province or, or, or Canada, for example. And the government has seemed to have reacted more swiftly in Canada than in the United States, which may have mitigated against a, a, a true surge in lawsuits uh, because people's pecuniary interests uh, may have been protected by government. Um, uh, programs um, uh, to the extent that they're covering certain losses that individuals and families are going through. So as a holistic approach, yes, a lawsuit is one way to attempt to uh, write a remedy if, 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 if successful, but there's also uh, other approaches such as government assistance, uh, which is important to consider as well. Yeah, and, and on the, the flip side of the coin from, from our aspect, we're not seeing a surge of investment industry errors and emission kind of claims. Perhaps people are taking a wait-and-see wait and approach in the market, so we're not seeing uh, a surge of that. Frankly, I'm hearing from uh, from claims, uh, uh, claims council that uh, cyber claims are up and uh, defamation, but um, other kind of investment claims uh, tend to be down uh, for the moment. Defamation, interesting. Is that just a coincidence or is that uh, COVID-related? No, they're related to COVID as as there's a fight for fewer uh, consumer dollars. Oh, uh, I, see. I see. Yeah, I'm hearing that, you know, I'm not handling them, but I'm hearing from Claims Council that they're seeing an increase in those. Okay, interesting. Thank you. Um, 
our next question here is, uh, it's, it seems intuitive. The less driving means less car accidents. And there certainly has been a lot less driving recently for counsel that frequent in the car insurance space. Do you have any tips on pivoting the practice to weather this drought of claims, or do you expect that the impact to be short term enough that the investment would not be worth it? This is more from a practice management perspective, but if you have any tips for, um, young counsel or counsel that have leaned heavily into the um, car accident space? I say stay the course, quite frankly. We've actually seen an uptick in, in, in claim referrals, um, particularly, I believe, not only because of COVID, but when you're running a, a, a practice, a lot of people like to take March break and a lot of claims and uh, disputes were... Uh, were applied for uh, probably just before March break, and now they've made their way and are making them uh, to the law firms in order to uh, defend. Uh, I think that the slowdown will be in a couple of months, um, a real slowdown for um, uh, certain types of firms. Uh, but I say stick with it. Uh, it's important, uh, first of all, from a professional perspective, that you're competent to do what you're doing. If you want to latch on to a different area, it's always nice to expand uh, what you'd like to do, but work with a practitioner who has worked in that area and can guide you, for example, and be aware of the business realities, um, you know, and obviously maintain at least one foot or both firmly entrenched in the auto world. Uh, because quite frankly, you know, um, when the economy opens up and the measures are relaxed, uh, people might actually want to uh, drive more than take public transportation. Mr. Benetti made that comment uh, uh, to us while we were discussing these questions, and I think it's an excellent point. So uh, to the extent that uh, certain areas of law are dependent on other people's misfortune, it is regrettable. Uh, we're not transactional lawyers, but that's the reality. Uh, I think it's too early to pivot right now unless you want to do it out of pure interest and for your own personal reasons other than anything pecuniary. Okay, thank you. Uh, so next question here. When discussing this matter with other practitioners, it was revealed that many are resorting to arbitration to, to, to determine their matters in light of court closures. Uh, are you or your peers resorting to arbitration more frequently and would you recommend that to uh, other counsel in obtaining a faster dispute resolution, considering all the costs involved and, um, and all factors. Michael? I, no, I, I mean, in our space, it's, there's generally not uh, arbitration clauses and we haven't, um, you know, especially on, on the defense side, uh, you know, suffice to say, sometimes we're, we're not uh, interested in the fastest resolution. Um, so we're, we're not uh, necessarily pushing plaintiff's counsel to arbitrate a matter. And frankly, no one has been suggesting to us, um, you know, really in that regard, it really does take two to tango. So we, we just haven't found any synergies on that point yet. Yeah. And certainly from our perspective, um, I've got to hand it to the mediators in the city uh, and in the province. Um, their adoption of virtual mediation uh, has been, you know, pretty much overnight. And a lot of them have done a very good job at uh, continuing their mediation practices virtually. And that, I think, has helped a lot of people. And certainly, um, you know, with the courts adjusting and, and having case conferences and pretrials virtually uh, means that, you know, if you want to settle, 
you don't have to go to arbitration. You're, you're quite, there are a variety of other opportunities that are available that frankly are a lot more uh, cost-effective than arbitration. Arbitration tends to be incredibly expensive, frustrating, uh, and often both parties uh, end up dissatisfied. And, and certainly that, that can happen in mediation as well. But usually when both parties end up dissatisfied in the mediation, it's because you settled. <laughs> Not because both parties got a result that they weren't looking for. So um, certainly we've had success with, with virtual mediations, uh, virtual pretrials. Um, and uh, I know that, that the judiciary has been working very hard on the virtual pretrials. So um, we have not seen uh, an uptick in arbitrations in our practice. Okay. Uh, on that note, uh, the next question is related. Have you experienced, you or your peers experienced an uptick in or a greater appetite for settlement at this time because um, uh, the courts are less than, a, less than available in a lot of instances or is it, um, is it the same uh, as it was before? I think in some regards, it you know, we may be on the dawn of a new era in terms of uh, getting to resolution faster than we have in the past. I mean, notwithstanding that, you know, 98 or whatever the 90th percentile of cases settle or never see the inside of a courtroom, the ones that do are painfully slow. Um, so, you know, I, I circle back to the comment I made about being on the dawn of a new era. I think judges... I, I mean, a few in particular are, have really taken the, the bull by the horns and are driving matters forward and setting down pretty aggressive timetables faster than, than frankly, you could have uh, gotten from a judge in the past. I mean, in the past, you had to uh, ask to go to motion scheduling court or some sort of trials practice court. A timetable would be set. Most people would disregard it anyway, uh, just because of the, the realities of day-to-day -day practice. Now, judges... Uh, on a simple request or sometimes of their own volition are, are handling these virtually and setting down pretty, pretty aggressive timetables. So, you know, dare I say this may be, um, you know, the time where we've learned to have more activist case management judges pushing matters forward like they do in the States, which frankly, um, you know, I don't, I don't think it's a bad thing. I think it's given people an opportunity to reflect and uh, take a good hard look at um, the nature of the case that they have and that they're dealing with. And if, if they're not otherwise out and about traveling, for example, to an event such as an out-of-town pretrial or an examination for discovery, they're um, taking a look at a file that's um, in their cabinet or on their computer and reviewing it and sending out settlement proposals. So you have that aspect of it, which is um, outside of the context of an event. And of course, um, insurers are in a position of having to uh, address it and respond. Uh, I think that the initial, there was some initial anxiety about one side or the other, perhaps taking advantage of the situation. I personally have not seen that. I think it's pretty much business as usual in dealing with the nature of its claim based on its on the merits of the claim, which um, everybody should be commended for. And I think that's a very fair uh, to the extent that everybody's embraced the technology. Uh, it's, it's also helped if we need a third party to help facilitate a resolution. So um, I think that there have been more attempts to settle because uh, the opportunity has presented itself. Okay. Thank you.
Um, our next question uh, goes into the class actions area. Uh, according to L.S. Howard, an author at the Insurance Journal, a class action lawsuit has been consent, uh, commenced by Merchant Law Group against 14 of the largest Canadian insurers. Uh, this has been a claim for coverage under the business interruption provisions that we discussed earlier. Uh, do you anticipate more of these types of class actions or claims? And what are your general thoughts on um, class proceedings uh, with respect to COVID-19 claims? So um, first things first, I mean, I, I have a former client who is a defendant in this merchant law group uh, class action, and they've specifically told me that they don't have a single denied business interruption claim arising out of the COVID-19 pandemic. So they will, I know, be bringing a motion for summary judgment uh, on that basis. And part of the problem with uh, this kind of class action is they tend to be a bit scattershot. Um, and the other problem uh, from a defense perspective with this, this particular class action is that the wording that is used by the, the different defendants is often quite different. Um, so, for example, just, at, just picking two, like the wording that general insurance uh, company uses for their business interruption cover will not be the same as Lloyd's Canada's wording. And so what you're looking at really is a class action with a bunch of different subclasses. Mm-hmm. And then the question becomes, well, are all the insured similarly situated? Are they all, in, you know, are we talking about a national class or, or different subclasses for in each province because each province has a different insurance act? Um, so, you know, which are largely similar, but there are, there are provincial differences. So there are a variety of um, serious kind of substantive issues with this class action. There are also a variety of, of procedural issues. Um, but I do think that there will be a number of uh, of pre-certification motions about the nature of this class action. Uh, will there be more? Um, certainly, I, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if there were a variety of class actions launched against uh, the individual uh, long-term care homes that have had serious outbreaks. Um, you may see, I, I posited that you may see one against the government as a result of the, uh, the, the, the high number of uh, fatalities uh, in the long-term care homes because of the government's decisions pre-COVID uh, in and around inspections and, and that sort of thing with regard to the long-term care homes. Uh, airlines, um, Mr. Benedetto Mark mentioned that there have been a couple of class actions at least mentioned or mooted about against the airlines because they are, they're not refunding people's monies. Instead, they're offering credits. Uh, I think ultimately that's, there's two reasons for that. One is a cash flow reason and the other is uh, force majeure. Uh, so, you know, will there be more? Probably, yes. Um, this particular one, I think, has a variety of challenges from a defense perspective. Okay, thank you. Uh, any other opinions on the, the class action piece? It might be an yeah. opportune time to raise um, you know, something that I know that uh, Mr. Pierce uh, is quite close to. Like, a lot of practitioners advancing the claims are certainly going to rely on the, the case MDS uh, and factory mutual insurance, uh, which was based on an all-risk insurance policy that was called upon to indemnify a nuclear uh, research facility after a business interruption, uh, unexpected shutdown. And that was really because of uh, uh, the disruption, I believe, of the normal supply of isotopes, uh, which that business needed to uh, operate. 
Um, so on the one side, the plaintiff's counsel will likely rely on that and the defense will seek to distinguish that uh, in, ter in the context of their all risks, uh, physical loss or damage uh, uh, coverages. Um, do you think uh, that's the route uh, that will be taken, uh, Mr. Pierce? Um, certainly, I, I think plaintiff's counsel will try to rely on, on the MDS decision. The problem for plaintiff's counsel and the and the, the boon perhaps for defense counsel out, out of the MDS issue is that uh, MDS had per, had purchased a specific coverage, um, which was essentially uh, a time loss cover if they had a failure from a third party supplier. And MDS was buying isotopes from the Chalk River reactor in Chalk River, Ontario, which is up on the Ottawa River. After a power failure, uh, the Chalk River reactor had a, a heavy water leak, which was the result of some corrosion. And initially, the, the claim was denied because the, the insurer involved said, look, the, the corrosion exclusion applies here. Um, and then they tried to say, well, uh, there were a couple of other, there was a nuclear uh, um, radiation exclusion as well. And the court looked at the corrosion exclusion, found it to be ambiguous because the, the adjuster involved conceded that some kinds of corrosion were covered. Uh, the corrosion exclusion in that policy also had a resultant damage exception. And the court found that even if the corrosion exclusion applied, the resultant damage exception to the exclusion would bring coverage back in because the corrosion itself led to the leak, but the leak, the leak of the heavy water caused further damage, which was why the reactor was shut down and why the supply of isotopes uh, ground to a halt. So, um, and, it, and if you read the decision, actually, the, the court was so upset with the behavior of the insurer that they allowed the insured to claim their full cost of financing uh, of the loss in question. So, you know, it's... As much as plaintiff's counsel want to rely on that decision and say bad insurer, it's a very specific coverage. It's a very specific event. And what you're looking at there is the failure of a supplier, which the insured has no control over. And the insured specifically bought cover to, to cover them for that kind of event where a supplier is unable to supply the product they depend on. And that, that specific coverage in itself is very rare. So as much as plaintiff's counsel see that as a victory, and certainly it was, um, I don't think it has it will have general application going forward in, in cases like uh, the merchant class action, just because very few organizations will have bought that kind of contingent uh, cover. It, it's worth reading for everybody on the webinar, um, just to become familiar. It's a long, they're long reasons, but they're worth reading. Yeah, the analysis yeah. is very good. Yes. And the, the, the case for that, again, is MDS Inc. versus Mutual Insurance Company. It's 2020 for everybody listening. Uh, for plaintiff's counsel that might want to jump on it, <laughs> despite Mr. Pierce's comments. <laughs> um, so we've discussed about uh, uh, class actions. Uh, there, was another, there was another article by Mark, Go by Mark Golem in May 8th in the CBC, uh, he writes that as of that date, uh, 17 COVID-related class actions were commenced across Canada with others contemplated. In the, States on, in the United States on that day, upwards of 700 were filed. Um, how would you describe that discrepancy? And would you recommend that insurance litigators brush up on their class action litigation skills as a result? Or um, 
or, or not? And why why is that does that discrepancy exist aside from simply larger population? Well, I'll, I'll leave it to Michael to talk and to Frank to deal with the discrepancy. But on the skills standpoint, uh, you know, all, all I would say is be be a subject matter competent, uh, which is kind of what we're talking about. And and you know, in terms of class action skills, uh, you know, it's a procedural route, but it's it's all going to turn on on the underlying dispute. So I think really that's to the extent you know people are interested in class action procedure that skill set is not uh, is not insurmountable. I think the bigger the bigger issue is you know what what's the substance of the dispute and what's the likelihood of success. Okay. And just in terms of the discrepancy between the number of class actions here and in the U.S., I mean, we all I think are aware that uh, U.S. plaintiffs class class action counsel tend to be far more aggressive uh, than class action counsel in Canada. Um, now, I mean, that's changing, but certainly I, I don't think uh, the plaintiff's bar on the class action side has caught up to their U.S. brethren just yet. Um, and the other issue there, of course, uh, as Frank mentioned earlier, is that because Canadian government, the federal government and the, the various provinces have responded to the COVID pandemic in a relatively holistic and unified manner and have rolled out a series of benefits that have, to a greater or lesser degree, ameliorated uh, you know, at least a portion of the financial impact on the country and the population, you have less clamor for an alternative remedy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, US, the population in the U.S. often sees class actions as their remedy against go- either government inaction or corporate inaction and or greed, uh, whereas here class actions really are seen as a remedy for a serious civil wrong. Um, so it's, it's that, that difference in perception that arises out of the difference we see or we have in, in how our societies are governed and how responsive our government has been to the issue in question. Um, and I think that's part of why you see uh, clamoring for retroactive legislation on insurance coverage in several U.S. states, and you haven't seen that at all here. Uh, and a part of that is because our governments responded in a way that, you know, gave Canadians, I think, some level of confidence that the government would be there, support them through this and ameliorated at least a good percentage of the financial impact. Okay. All right. Thank you. We had mentioned uh, the doctrine of uh, force majeure earlier. So what role do you believe the doctrine of frustration of contract and force majeure will play in COVID related insurance claims? And do you expect that there's a chance that the courts might exercise some flexibility in these doctrines, or even potentially modify them in light of the wide ranging and unprecedented impact that this pandemic has had? And I um, ask that question, fully understanding Mr. Pierce's uh, comment with respect to how uh, supportive the Canadian government has been, but um, if you can get, give your perspective on how force majeure and um, the doctrine of frustration as they might apply in the insurance industry. I think we're, we're going to see them, that is going to be litigated in one context or another, whether it's in the insurance industry specifically, maybe not, uh, maybe we, we are going to see it in commercial leasing. I guess the question is, you know, who, who makes it to that uh determination first and are there parallels to be drawn 
and really the details are, are going to be in, in the definitions. And, and, and so we're coming across uh, just, you know, plain boilerplate force majeure language in just regular uh, commercial leases. And we're wondering how the courts are, are going to apply. Uh, but, you know, the devil really is in the details. And, you know, I've seen clauses that say, um, for example, you are, uh, if you're prevented access to a premises because of a force majeure, then there's no abatement of rent, for example. But that same lease will also say um, it's not a default under a lease if a force majeure prevents you from making any rent payments. So uh, how how those are going to get reconciled, I, I will you know watch and hopefully litigate with with great interest. Uh, but uh, you know, in terms of whether that's in insurance or out, uh, you know, it, it'll happen. Yeah. yeah, based on first principles, you know, force majeure is a, a contractual tool that uh, parties rely on to relieve themselves duties in a situation where an event occurs outside of uh, the control of the parties, um, and which would render the performance of the contract uh, virtually impossible or impossible. And frustration of a contract is a common law doctrine uh, that provides a similar remedy. So picking up on uh, you know what Michael said, it depends on the circumstances. So um, the emphasis has to be on the issue of whether or not performance of the contract would be impossible. Sometimes, you know, with COVID and other situations, there's delay, and whether delay amounts to frustration is a matter of a degree and context like most things that we deal with. Um, for example, a condo that burned down, that's been dealt with by our courts, leading to a one-year delay in its delivery to the purchasers, uh, the court found did not amount to frustration. So it's very fact-specific, and um, the remedies are certainly there, um, and it just uh, depends on whether or not the performance um, would be impossible. And the nature and extent of the delay, I would suggest. Okay. Thank you. Uh, the next question here is, there's been some discussion on insurer liability turning on whether or not COVID-19 was foreseen. Uh, what role do you see the foreseeability of COVID-19 playing in uh, insurance litigation going forward? Is that relevant at all, whether it was foreseen uh, or foreseeable, uh, and to what extent? So foreseeability or fortuity in the insurance context is one thing. I mean, I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about whether or not governments and health authorities uh, foresaw that a pandemic was a possibility. And, and most experts have said, look, we knew uh, that a pandemic was coming. We didn't know when it would come or where it would come from or how it would eventuate. But, uh, you know, I mean, after the Ebola scare, Obama, the President Obama set up an entire department within uh, the Security Council apparatus to deal with the next pandemic, which was subsequently dismantled. And that's been the subject of some controversy. Um, so I think from the perspective of a government or a, or a national or a provincial health authority, uh, the idea that there, there might be a pandemic at some future time uh, was, or there would be one, was, you know, an accepted premise. But the idea that a pandemic is foreseeable to an individual insured in such a way that they can mitigate against its effects is, is a different question, right? We talked about uh, fortuity 
uh, earlier today. And, and remember that a fortuitous event is something that's unlooked for, unexpected, or not intended by the insured. And I think you could probably say with regard to any insured that this was unlooked for, unintended, and unexpected. I mean, as much as then as federal governments across the world might have expected that a pandemic would eventuate, you can't say to that from a perspective of an individual insured, in my opinion, that they ought to have expected this specific event. And it's almost like a Monty Python thing. No one expects the Spanish Inquisition. You know, I mean, it's so, yeah. I, you know, I, I think from the concept of fortuity for this particular event is, is this is this event is fortuitous, I think, to, from the perspective of any given insured, unless you're, you know, a federal government or, or, a, or a, an overarching health authority. Okay. The next question here is uh, related to another article. Uh, construction lawyer Robert Canali has stated that there might be a need for legislators to retroactively deem that certain business interruption coverage be in, uh, interpreted to cover COVID-19 related interruptions, particularly in the construction industry where cash flow is critical to many small businesses' survival. Do you think that legislative inter- intervention into contractual terms like this would be welcome? I know this touched upon something that was mentioned uh, a little bit earlier, but if uh, any of our panelists would like to elaborate on that. Frank or well, Michael, I've kind of said my piece on this bit. Uh, yeah. I, I see. I mean, I guess the, 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 you know, we say sometimes the best way to get on with it is just to get on with it. So, and you can see the intense pressure that's been brought to bear on the Ontario government, at least to permit construction to start. I keep muting my line because they're building an office tower <laughs> beside me. Um, so we, I think that would, and the government has been responsive to that. So I think that limits the, the <laughs> sort of window for damages uh, or sort of for business interruption coverage that they could claim, it, it, you know, and, and they would have laid off a lot of workers. So the actual cost of the interruption may actually be quite limited uh, if the jobs are permitted to see themselves through to fruition. Uh, you know, the larger question is, um, is government willing to legislate? And we know the answer to that question is yes, at least in Ontario. Uh, for example, uh, just on Friday, Frank pointed out the uh, provincial government uh, promulgated an, a new regulation that said if you've reduced hours or pay because of COVID-19, then that is not uh, deemed to be either a temporary, it's not deemed to be a layoff for the purposes of the Employment Standards Act or a constructive dismissal. Um, and that, you know, and that is retroactive. So I think the short answer is, uh, you know, if they, if, if there's a need, then perhaps uh, it, with constructive, with construction industry specifically, there may not actually be the need if they're permitted to go back to work. Yeah, absolutely. You know, sound legislative decisions are always welcome. Um, for instance, you know, as a profession, um, we, our clients have benefited from um, the emergency services uh, that were put in with respect to uh, extending limitations periods, for example, so people did not have to be concerned about that. You can still act um, and, you know, do an electronic filing and, and serve your claim, but you're protected in the event that you're unable to. Which makes, which makes sense and it is fair because we're only capable of doing what we're capable of doing um, without harming ourselves and anybody else. So to the extent that sound legislation is put in, I think it's welcome across the board. 
And so far, it seems that there's been at both the federal and provincial levels uh, a very cerebral, thought out approach uh, to many aspects um, and uh, sort of helping everybody get a push forward rather than stifling uh, the economy even further. Yeah, and just to echo my earlier comments, I mean, from from my perspective, and I, and I have a particular political perspective, which I won't elaborate, but ultimately, um, crises like this are what a federal government is for, right? And and so retroactively legislating that a specific industry has to bear the brunt of a international crisis seems to me to be just a, a slightly wrongheaded approach. I mean, there are perhaps specific industries that need more help rather than less. Uh, certainly, there's been a couple of articles today about the tourism industry and whether or not they're going to get uh, a little more uh, government assistance, given that they have been so poor, uh, so significantly impacted, and given that the tourism industry was apparently putting $100 billion into the Canadian economy every year and employing millions of Canadians. Apparently, one in every 11 jobs in Canada uh, has some uh, relation to the tourism industry. And, and so, if those go away, then that's a bigger problem for the federal government. So, you're looking at probably a more significant rollout of, of assistance in that industry. Um, but I think that these problems are, are the kinds of problems that need to be solved at the government level, not at a commercial industry level. So from my perspective, you know, this is the kind of thing that governments ought to be responding to and, and not with legislation that targets a specific industry that says you have to pay for this problem. Turning here with this question to our industry, uh, a little bit, a little bit of a biased panel here. But uh, with respect to the lawyers' professional insurance, we've seen a discount on car insurance premiums, for example, because of reduced driving. What is your opinion on whether LawPro should be providing a discount on professional liability insurance to lawyers, especially litigators, uh, in light of court closures? With the full understanding that this is a panel of litigators. <laughs> I probably uh, should give a discount anyway, but let Michael go ahead. <laughs> um, I, I think we all actually agreed last night that you know, with the suspension of limitation periods, the the reality is that most of the claims that LPIC, uh, the law, lawyers' professional indemnity company, faces are not uh, litigation based; they're real estate based, and the ones that litigators generate often are missed limitation periods. So, given that limitation periods has been suspended. Um, you know, but the reality is we can all still practice. We're all still practicing. We've been right. deemed an essential service. Uh, we're still going to the office. Some of us are uh, perhaps increasing the risk to our insurers by working from home. Um, uh, Michael mentioned yesterday, perhaps we're not collaborating as effectively with our colleagues as we used to. That's an increased risk. Um, so, I mean, I, yes, I'm a litigator, but I, I'm also an insurance lawyer. And from the insurance perspective, um, I certainly don't think that uh, we're doing anything that's less risky than we were before. Uh, and in fact, we may right now be a bigger risk to our insurer just because of the increased exposure of working from home and the, and the social isolation that goes with that. So uh, my, my answer is no, I don't think we're going to get a discount, nor do I think we need one. I, I, I thought about it after, uh, and I thought perhaps it might be, I think it is appropriate, quite frankly, maybe for new calls and young lawyers, yeah. um, you know, that, that, that don't have traction yet um, and are having a very hard time finding uh, a place to land and earn a living doing this. 
So I think that's something that should be done, and uh, I would fully endorse that uh, as, as part of the Lost Society of Ontario, some measure uh, to help uh, those entering the profession. And those, quite frankly, that perhaps have uh, had a very, very difficult time um, whose practices are exclusively related to, or largely related to, rather, attendances, like the criminal defense bar, for example. Yeah, certainly that, that, uh, makes, know, that makes sense. Different areas, you know, whatever we can do to assist is, is I think, is always worthwhile. Okay. Okay, well, with that, that brings us to our time. Uh, Mr. Benedetto, Mr. Pierce, Mr. Benetti, this has been very educational and insightful for me. I, I hope it has been for all our audience members. With that, if there's nothing else, everybody have a good week. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.